Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. With tomorrow being Father's Day, I thought this episode would be a great time to shift into also opening up the conversation to a guest who's also lost their father. But before we do that, let's zoom out for a moment. There's a lot of grief and sadness in the world right now, obviously for two major events happening side by side. The COVID-19 pandemic that has taken so many lives in the last few months, but also the nationwide veil lifting of police brutality and the senseless killing of black and brown people at the hands of armed police officers. We're all here listening to this podcast, or in my case, making it, because we're trying to heal from loss. In thinking about the spaces I create and occupy, I really took a deep look at the grief I center in this podcast and the grief that so many black people and non-black people of color have faced and continue to face in this country. Loss is hell already, but losing your parent or sister or brother or friend at the hands of a system meant to protect you, a system that doesn't yet believe in restorative justice, I couldn't imagine. I hope that in some way, some even small way, that this podcast helps us heal ourselves so that we can be better accomplices to making our country a safer place for black people by stopping these killings at the hands of these powerful capitalist systems and to protest, donate, educate, and remember that this is not a moment, it's a movement. That all being said, this episode is here to help guide fatherless people through Father's Day. This episode, I interviewed Reese Bernard. Reese is the CEO and editor-in-chief of autostraddle.com which some of you may know is the world's most popular website for lesbian, bisexual, and queer women and non-binary people. Her dad passed away when she was 14. He was training for a marathon and died of a heart attack. Her dad was her best friend, which you'll be able to tell throughout the interview. My parents got divorced when I was 13. My dad died when I was 14, and then my mom came out when I was 15. And then I went to boarding school because I was like... It's not working out very well for me here. <laughs> Things aren't going well here. Like, I don't remember them fighting that much, but I also don't remember them being very affectionate that much either. But they seem like very different people to me who were very similar when they were younger. When they were, I mean, my mom is like a Jewish girl from Chicago and my dad is like a farm guy from rural Ohio. Like my mom was the first Jewish person that his family ever met. And I think they had very similar politics and similar hobbies like drinking, opium, going to college. The three, <laughs> three hobbies. Yeah, I think that I so I think they they connected at a certain time. I don't know. It's very interesting to me that they were ever married, I guess. But I'm sure my mom would be very shocked to hear that because I know that they had they had some kind of connect they definitely had a connection it just wasn't one that i necessarily i don't know if i maybe i just wasn't paying attention mm -hmm. you know but the d divorce definitely came as a huge surprise like i had heard i remember there being two major fights i remember one fight that involved you know the sort of cliche like pack your suitcase nah, nah, nah. i don't even remember who was telling who to pack a suitcase but no one went anywhere i had no idea they were like on the verge and it wasn't even the i guess i found out later like that they had almost gotten divorced earlier, like there was a year we moved to Boston or outside of Boston, Concord. My dad was on a fellowship at Harvard. And I guess their initial plan 
was that they were going to move us all out there together. And then my mom was going to like move out and they were going to start separating. This is when I was in fourth grade. And I guess that they just didn't. So I guess stuff had been not great for a while. But yeah, it was a huge surprise. So I was in seventh grade when they told me they were like separating. And I was very dramatic about it and said like my world was over or whatever. And I was really upset. And then I kind of came to like it because first of all, my dad got a condo right by the mall. Like I could walk to the mall from his condo, which is like. You know, Prime real estate. Yeah. And I was 12 and it was in the early 90s. So like there's really no better place to be at that time, at that age, than right, right by the mall. Yeah. I started to like it because we got to spend a lot more time with him and a lot more quality time with him. A lot less time where I guess my parents were in secret fights, you know? Yeah, we just, we were able to do so much more with him and he took us on more trips and like on more, we had a lot more like adventures and more, and he would be so excited about his weekends with us that he would always plan a bunch of stuff. And it just seemed like there were a lot of things he liked to do that my mom didn't like to do. Mm. Like, almost everything you know he was very into like skiing and sailing and basketball I don't know he loved like working with me in my school projects and stuff like they just had very different interests very, like, hands-on. yeah and he liked building things and he liked really just like learning things I think what him and my mom both had in common is they both have a lot of intellectual curiosity and a lot of just like a hunger to like see the world and understand the world and and to travel and learn things about it and stuff like that. Like, I think they definitely shared that and also like a very heightened political consciousness. But I think that for him, like they got married really young. They started dating when they were both in their very early 20s. And he hadn't really, I don't know if he'd even like been on an airplane at that point or anything. Like they they met when they were very young. So I think this was sort of for him, like the beginning of like a new life now that he kind of knew who he was. You know, he had a motorcycle and a sports car and I remember he got his like ear pierced (laughs) which was like again the 90s Mm -hmm. but went on like these motorcycle trips with his friends and stuff so I think it was sort of like he was having I guess I mean most married couples who got married in that era and got married really young like I'm talking about this like this is an essential element of the human lifespan but it's like I do feel like there's a whole generation of people, which is like every generation, maybe before ours, where they didn't really have their 20s to kind of like figure out who they were and what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes after divorce is when they get to kind of experience that. Yeah. 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 And and, and for him and also like he was being he was very successful at his work and was becoming more and more successful, like like things were moving along like super rapidly in terms of his career. And so I think also he hadn't grown up with a ton of money. And now he had money and was excited to do to do things with it, you know, mm-hmm. to travel with it and to do stuff with us and to do stuff with his friends. So he was an accounting professor at the University of Michigan. He said his work was boring, so he never talked about it. So I don't really know a lot of what he did, except that he traveled a lot. I guess he I found out after he died a lot, a lot of stuff. Like whenever we'd ask you to be like, oh, it's boring. You don't want to hear about it. I mean, I knew he did something involving the stock market. He would tell us stuff about businesses that were about to like, he'd be like, don't tell any of your friends, but like video watch is about to get bought, bought by Blockbuster, you know, like, <laughs> and I'd be like, of course I, I mean, and I didn't tell my friends because that would have been, he could have <laughs> gone to jail trading, for that. That would have yeah. been insider trading. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a professor, but also a researcher. So I guess he like published a lot and 
was on a lot of boards. I was always not clear. I'm like, right before he died, he wrote a text. He had written a textbook and that was very successful for a long time. And yeah, like he had he had taught at Harvard that year and they wanted him to stay there. But we went back to Michigan because that's where our community was, I guess. But he was like really very talented and other like he was a really great writer and he helped me with my writing and he was a really great artist and stuff. But, you know, he's also sensible about like getting a career that's going to like make money and, mm -hmm. and all that. But yeah, I guess he was on track for some kind of government something. But then he died. So womp womp. You had written in your diary, the only good thing in my life right now is my dad. What was it about your relationship with him that made you feel that way? Like such a special connection to him? Well, I think he was very devoted to me. And like very, he was very into me. Like, and, <laughs> and thought I was very talented and funny and that I would be successful in many ways. And I think that he's very smart. Or he was very smart. Now he's just like a bag of dirt. But... Um, he he was like a genius and so I think that he thought it felt like he thought that I was had potential to be his like intellectual equal at some point you know like he really pushed me to learn a lot and to like do good in school and and everything like that and I don't know I just felt like I guess I was just like a daddy's girl kind of you know like we really connected my mom and my brother were close and me and my dad were close and at that time, like that time period, like I've always had um, major depressive disorder. And so I was like very intensely depressed for reasons I couldn't put my finger on for like most of like, I'd say between like 12 and, and 14 when he died. I would like cry every night for no reason a lot, you know? And so, but the only thing that like consistently made me happy was my dad. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, we had, he had just like moved into this condo that took forever for them to build. And going there was like going on vacation. You know, we could eat all the foods. My, he started this dating this girl, Dara, from his hometown and she would cook a lot. And my mom was like a nutritionist. So she cooked just like healthy, low fat food. And, and Dara would cook like fried chicken and corn and stuff. And it was like, oh my God, we're really living our best lives finally, you know. And also he had AOL at his house. Yeah, that's So, yeah. you know, and a computer, like a color computer. I mean, I'm sure he had problems and stuff, but I never saw them. And you never consider that. Like, you never consider that, you're, that your parents could die when you're a kid. No. So it felt like a safe thing to rely on, mm -hmm. I think. So, yeah, I felt that bond with him. But also, so that, like, that diary entry was, like, two things. One was speaking to just how close I was with him and how much, how big an important part of my life he was. But the other was how profoundly depressed I was all the time, that this was the only thing I could, like, think about feeling good. It was November 14th, 1995. It was a Tuesday. So my parents' custody agreement, We ha he had me on every Wednesday, every other weekend. And if he didn't have me on the weekend, he'd have me on Tuesday. By me, I mean me and my brother. I also had a brother. He was present through all of this, but obviously I was very obsessed with myself. So, you know, I was a teenage girl. It was the 90s. So I had theater pra practice after school. We were doing no exit. I didn't have a part because no exit only has like five roles. So I was like 
doing some backstage thing. After school, you went to McDonald's. And then we went back to the school. And then the theater director guy was like, oh, like you're going to be picked up. Like your mom's friend, Jeanette. I gave everyone fake names in the essay. But um, your mom, like Jeanette's going to come pick you up because... Uh, your dad is in the hospital or something. And I was like, that's weird, but probably fine. And so she picked me up and she told me he was in the hospital, that he'd been having chest pains. And I was like, right. Um, and I remember sitting in the backseat, like thinking, what's the worst thing that this could be? And for some reason decided that the worst thing could be that he would be blind, which I have no idea why that's what I landed on. So I was like, that was what I had sort of settled on as the worst case scenario is that somehow my dad was having chest pains that would blind him. So I went to Jeanette's house and went upstairs and I did my homework. Um, so her daughter, Janelle, was like my best friend in elementary school, but we weren't close anymore. So it was like a very weird, you know, to be at her house and like when all of this is happening. And she's always really super nice to me, but like was infinitely cooler than me at that time. They had a huge house. So this is all happening in like a mansion. <laughs> so like they, I think probably called up on the intercom that my mom was there and we came downstairs and went to the living room and sat on the couch. I think my brother was there. Maybe he was there again, very focused on myself. <laughs> um, and my mom was like, I want you to know that he didn't feel any pain. And I was like, Then I remember crying, like I remember being in the car on the way home and crying and we were in the minivan and I remember pressing my feet against the base of the, like the floor of the car. From there, it's like kind of a whirl. Like we went home. I think I, I remember calling my friends who at first thought I was joking because I'm like, I'm dark. The dark sense of humor. Even before this. So you can imagine at this point, you know, I'm like always delivering comedy from the grave my friends came over I think they slept over there were a lot of people to call someone had to tell his sisters and they had to tell his parents it was all there were a lot of people around for a long time which I'm sure is part of most people's death experience like suddenly your house is filled with people <laughs> all the time but it, there was a lot of like logistics you know to do I don't remember I think that my friends Amelia and Becky like slept over on my floor and we just moved into that house which was good because I didn't have any memories like he'd pick me up there only one time because we'd only lived there for a few weeks my mom had just moved into this new house so we had a memorial service at our synagogue in Ann Arbor and then we went to Ohio for the funeral um, which was like a Quaker funeral. The way my dad used to talk about Quaker church was he said that like everyone sat there in silence. You're supposed to think about God and you can like stand up if like you have thought about God you want to share with people. And if you fall asleep, then you get like hit with a ruler. So that was all I knew about Quaker church prior to this funeral. But it was a lot of like sitting if someone wanted to say something, they could stand. But I sat in the back of the room because I was mad that they did an open casket and I didn't want them to do an open casket. But apparently it was like, important to everyone else but I do have one memory of being in the room that his coffin was in like on visitation the day before and like 
trying to talk to my cousin Natalie and seeing there was like also a mirror. So it's like the, the casket's on one end of the room and then there's a mirror on the other end of the room. So even if you choose for whatever reason to not go stare at the dead corpse of your father, you still can catch it in the mirror. Yeah. So I think it was a really good way that they had that set up at the funeral home. So I remember seeing it out of the corner of my eye, but very vaguely. And then my brother and I just like hit out on the stairwell for most of the time because everybody was like, just had all of these emotions and I felt very detached from all of it. And like, I didn't know what, how to deal with my grandparents, like who I love very much, but I couldn't fathom like the depths of what they were going through and I didn't want to touch it, you know, and vice versa, you know? And I think like all anyone wanted from my brother and I at that moment was like big dramatic like displays of devastation or whatever. Mm. But I don't know. We couldn't afford it. We were about to, he, he and I more so than anyone else in that room, our like day-to-day -day lives are about to change in like a very intense way. And that no one else, not even my mom, because they, I mean, everyone's lives are about to change like, enormously and everyone was lives were ruined in so many ways everyone was devastated and everyone had so much grief but I think we were the only ones who had to like re-enter a life that he was an everyday part of mm -hmm. and figure out how to exist within that how am I going to live with this mm -hmm. and I, th I don't think either of us felt like we could afford to let it destroy us in an obvious way it's almost like it was destroying us so much on the inside that like it would have been sort of gratuitous to you know and also it just felt so weird. I don't know. Funerals are weird. Funerals it felt so very weird. like... It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And it felt very detached. It felt very formal. I mean, I was raised Jewish. Like the memorial service, I obviously like cried a ton. But I didn't know most of the people at this service besides my family. So, and I'd never been to like a Quaker situation before. So I didn't really know that much about that. So it just felt very... It didn't really feel like this was the moment of... But that's always kind of how I've been. Like I would always, I would never cry at graduation. I would always cry like a week later when I was unpacking, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that people were worried about me. And I think they were worried also like by, like I don't want to get too much, but like my relationship with my mom at the time was really, really bad. And I think they were worried about that. Like how, if it was a good place for me to be. But then I went to boarding school, so I took care of it. I think they were all worried that I was going to like die also. Everyone treated me with kid gloves, you know. And then you went back to school like a week later, right? Yeah. So like in this essay, you talk about the grief group. Mm -hmm. Is that there was like 10 kids who had lost their parents in like a two-year span? Well, it was, it was interesting because it was like at this time. So I went to this really big public school for like two years. And it had like 4,000 students or something, which was a big a bigger pool to choose to, to find death within than than. I might have it at the other school I went to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I guess the counselors have been like, there's quite a few kids who've like lost their parents recently. Like let's put together this like grief group or whatever that we had in a counseling room in the, I don't remember where. They always, there were always like donuts or bagels, I think. It was weird because in some ways it was sort of like the breakfast club where like you have in the room, like how in the world are all of these people from very different social groups within this school's ecosystem, like in the same room. How are they connected? Yeah. yeah. Like no one in the room was friends with anyone else. Like there were two girls who were sisters whose mom had died of cancer. And those two were like kind of tangentially friends with this guy who was like, I want to say like a jock type guy. 
but like these are people who like what they would pass me in the hallway and absolutely would never say hi to me so it was this very weird like here we are under this specific situation where we're all going to talk intimately to each other and then we're like not really know each other outside of this room but the thing is like I didn't feel like I could relate to any of them because they had lost a parent but like the girls who were sisters who were super close and she had died like slowly of cancer and I couldn't really relate to that experience because so much of what defined the experience for me was the surprise the only other person in the room whose parent had died like surprisingly or it wasn't um, an illness and a decline was a girl whose father had killed himself and I remember reading about it in the newspaper because he had like jumped off a bridge. She went to my Hebrew school and there was no way I could relate to that either. So I didn't really say very much. I feel like there were two people in there who never spoke. I rarely spoke. I just felt like none of these people could understand me. None of them know what I'm going through. I didn't talk to my friends about it. Yeah. I didn't really talk to anyone about it. To who and when did you feel like you could actually start talking about it? Probably no one. I mean, I wrote, I've written two things about it. I mean, I feel like everything I say is talking about it in a way. I guess I talk about him and I've talked about it over the years. Like whenever anyone in my larger social web loses a parent, they're like, oh, you should talk to Marie or Reese, whatever, um, about that or whatever. So in that sense, I guess I have. And yeah, there have been like conversations here and there with different people, but I guess I don't really know what I would define talking about it yeah, to be. You sense. know what I mean? Like I talk, sure, I talk about it all the time. It's essential. It feels like I should just like have a card that as soon as I meet someone I'm going to be friends with, I'm like, by the way, this is my trauma and um, it defines who I am and everything that I will ever do. So just like keep it in mind. <laughs> I avoided th going to therapy for a really long time. Or I was sent to a lot of therapists, but I would always be like, I have to go. I just felt like I had to like block it out. Otherwise I would die. And I think that was not a great idea, which everyone told me, but I also don't really think I had any other choice. Mm -hmm. Like once I went to boarding school, which I loved and like finally sort of found myself in my place and, and became like something similar along, like in the general realm of happy for the first time, I felt like I had more ability to like look at bad stuff. It's interesting to read about people who lose their parents as grown-ups and then have like these breakdowns or something or they lose their jobs and they or they or they like their relationships fall apart. Like all these things, these decisions that they make or not decisions, but these things that kind of like fall apart in the wake of it or whatever. When you're a kid, you what can you do? Shove it down. You have to keep you have to go back to you can't quit high school. Yeah. I mean, not like an adult could quit their job. Like, obviously, like the, these are real things that destroy people's lives. But there was no way for me to destroy my life. So in that essay as well, there's a picture of yourself that you drew in your diary <laughs> a year later. And it says, you can't see mental strongness, but it's there. Yeah. If someone sees it, then I'll marry them. And first of all, obviously, as I'm sure you know, now the word is strength. But strongness. <laughs> Secondly, I think that there's something that like certainly I've romanticized about other people who could understand this like really traumatic thing that's happened yeah. to me. Like mm -hmm. what was your experience like kind of like unpacking this with people that you were dating and like 
what their reactions were. I definitely don't think I've ever dated anyone who like was like, let's not talk about it. But I do feel that often the relationships I've had that have ended up being the most fucked up have been with people who part of how they endeared themselves to me to begin with was with a lot of interest in my dad and finding out more about him and hearing about him. And that would sort of like bond me to them or make them feel like, make me feel like they really cared in an important way. And often those people would turn out to be like manipulative. And I, and I have to choose to believe that their interest in my father and in hearing more about it was genuine and came from a real honest place because I just don't want to think about people in a different way than that. But it is interesting like how it has come up in my relationships in weird ways. But definitely like I think if I was with someone who even like yawned, if I was mentioning my dad, I wouldn't be want to date them anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't I, as a dating women, I don't really even know if there's an option to date women who don't have any trauma. It does feel like I, I do frequently date people who have had really intense fucked up lives. And I've had a lot, I mean, I'm like 37. I've had like quite a few like long-term relationships. I can only think of one person I dated for, oh, no, wait, two. I've dated two people who had like parents who are alive, married to each other. And I wouldn't say happy, but fine. I almost always date people who have like weird family situations or it's, which is funny because I want a new father. And I, and it's very hard for me to find, I have not yet found one. Like sometimes it's almost, I know that that would really like glob me onto someone's family. You know, I haven't had anyone even like compete, like step into that at all. I'm always dating people whose fathers are absent or, or something like that. But like, it's also come up in like, I had a, a girlfriend who had a psychotic break. Well, um, after we broke up, who then tried to like sort of ruin my life afterwards yeah and <laughs> you know how it is yeah and one of the things she kept going back to was she was fixated on my dad and she was like your dad is looking at you and telling you that he doesn't think you're being fiscally responsible and he's ashamed of you and I've spoken because she thought she was Jesus because this is what happens and like like when she was in her like delusional state and like coming after me like mentioned him all the time all the time like he became one of the things she was fixated on along with like Angelina Jolie, she was fixated on, and like George W. Bush, this is like 2000, late aughts or whatever. And there have been a few things in my life like that where it's like, I wish that this didn't keep coming up in situations that are so cruel, mm -hmm. you know? I, I had a really bad fight with a girl who was also really terrible, where she was always upset that I had like more friends than her or something. And she's like, you know, you may have more friends than me, but like, at least I still have a family. Like we worked, we worked together. We were at work and I just like got my bag and like walked out and called my boss. And I was like, I'm leaving work today. But so, and that seems weird, right? Like that's not normal. But, no. The, no. but so, yeah, I know that's not what you asked, but it does feel like there's been times where it's like, why does this become a sort of power play mm -hmm. that people can use against you or something? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that aside. Most of the people I've dated have been really wonderful about like open to hearing about it and wanting to know more and or at least have pretended to be at least, mm -hmm. which is nice. But like the more interest they express, obviously, the more endeared I am to them about it. 
Before we move on to the pop culture segment, here's a quick ad from a very informative podcast called Encyclopedia Womanica. And if you listen to the latest episode about Billie Jean King, you'll hear a familiar voice. Mine. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. Six Feet Under was an HBO drama series that ran from 2001 to 2005. The Emmy Award-winning show was created by Alan Ball, who you may or may not know also wrote American Beauty and created True Blood. And he's gay. Happy Pride. Six Feet Under is my favorite show. The very first episode, their dad dies. He's hit by a truck. And he owns a funeral home. Reports conflict how the series' premise came to be. One source says that Ball created the show after the deaths of his father and sister. But then in a different interview, Ball says that the HBO president, Carolyn Strauss, read the first draft and said, how do we make this more fucked up? And then Ball came up with the idea for the dad to die in the first episode. We meet the Fisher family at the moment they each discover that Nathaniel Sr. has died in a car accident while driving his new hearse on Christmas Eve. Ruth, the matriarch of the family and wife of the late Nathaniel, immediately panics screaming and throwing the phone upon hearing the news, eventually revealing she was cheating on him. Nate, the eldest son, is busy having sex with a stranger at the airport, an impressive yet risky move, and then finds out about his dad's death, to which he feels guilty about for moving away. David, the middle child, is stoic, but inside is really bummed because his dad never knew that he was gay and in a relationship with a man. And last, Claire, the youngest, has just taken crystal meth with some friends, so obviously she's in a great place to receive the news. Throughout the series, even though Nathaniel Sr. is dead, he's still present in the show. He's present in flashbacks, but also conversing with characters like a ghost. It feels like he's the voice of reason or the conscience that chimes in when a character really needs a parent's advice. Oh, good. My Bougainvillea needs this. You were brave to face him. Not really. There was a guard. Doesn't matter. I'm proud of you. I thought it would set me free, but it didn't change anything, except now I know he really is insane. You're missing the point. There is no point. That's the point. Isn't it? Don't give me this phony existential bullshit. I expect better from you. The point's right in front of your face. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't see it. You're not even grateful, are you? Grateful? For the worst fucking experience of my life? You hang on to your pain like it means something, like it's worth something. Well, let me tell you, it's not worth shit. 
let it go. Infinite possibilities, and all he can do is whine. Well, what am I supposed to do? What do you think? You can do anything, you lucky bastard. You're alive. What's a little pain compared to that? It feels far too common in TV shows that once a character dies, they're rarely reflected on again. But in Six Feet Under, the characters consistently talk about the grief they feel for their father and how that grief changes as their lives evolve. And because they own a funeral home, how could you not constantly think about how death and grief manifests in your life? In the season five commentary, Alan Ball says, Six Feet Under refers not only to being buried as a dead body is buried, but also to primal emotions and feelings running under the surface. When one is surrounded by death, to counterbalance that, there needs to be a certain intensity of experience, of needing to escape. It's Nate with his womanizing. It's Claire and her sexual experimentation. It's Brenda's sexual compulsiveness. It's David having sex with a male hooker in public. It's Ruth having several affairs. It's the life force trying to push through all that suffering and grief and depression. I, I relate to, to Claire's experience of suddenly having her dad die. But I also just relate to the fact that the, the, the core conceit of the show where they're all working and or living in a funeral home where their lives are constantly defined by death. Like they're, every episode is a new dead, a new family, grieving family or friends or, or lack thereof. And I think that like part of what draws me to the show is just I feel like when you lose your parent when you're young, it really does kind of define you in a really major way. And I think that sometimes it can feel like you're living in a funeral home, even when you're just like living in your own apartment. And they're constantly grappling with like, what does death mean? And how do we honor the dead? And how do we honor the dead when it's complicated? And there's also a part in it, which I quote in my essay, which is when Brenda is talking about if you're a spouse who loses a spouse, you're a widow. Like if you're a child and you, like you lose your parents, you're an orphan, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you're a parent who loses a kid. There's no name because yeah. it's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's like, and that makes me think of my grandparents a lot. And those conversations happen all the time in that show. So I, I think that like, in addition to it just being a really good show, that's really well written with really great writers and great cast. But it's also just a really good show if you feel like you're constantly thinking about death anyway, mm-hmm. which I am. As a teenage girl in the mid-90s, I really just wanted to be normal, which I now know is boring and, and no one wants to be normal. Everyone wants to be weird and different and interesting. That's how you become a good artist. But I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to fit in. I wanted people to want to come over to my house. Like I wanted to go over to their houses and see their happy families or whatever. And most of my friends had happy, happily married parents. And I had a dead parent. And my mom was going through a lot and like, our relationship was super bad. And so I was just like, I could just want to be normal. I just want to have a normal family. And when she came out to me, I was like, well, that's never going to happen, which is awful. Like now as a gay, like now that I'm gay, I mean, obviously a a lot of my reaction was internalized homophobia, I'm sure, which I had no conception of at the time because I was like, I'm straight. 
probably because I just wanted like a new man to fill his spot or whatever. But I like did not. I was afraid that I, my mom would give me lesbianism, like give me a gay gene. Um, so that was terrifying to me. But mostly I was just like how like I just remember crying and being like, you're ruining my life. Like I did. I did like want I think a part of me did want her to date men and maybe like marry a new man, you know, because people are always like, oh, no one could replace my parent. But I'm like, of course, no one could replace my dad. But I wouldn't mind if there was someone who like tried to. But I became like very independent at that point in my life. And I was just like, I'm like, I remember in college, I was always like, no one's gonna, I don't need anyone to help me move in and out. Like I can do it myself. It took me a while to be like, oh, it's actually like, okay to ask for help with things. Like I was just like, I have to take care of everything myself and I will take care of myself myself. And I don't need anyone's help. Like trying to be my own dad, I guess. Be the dad you never had or be the dad you had who died. But but there's a ton, now there's a ton of people in my life without dads, oddly. But I think that's probably, you know, you write enough about death and suddenly, you know, friends read your writing and then they start writing for your website. But anyway, and at the time, like, it wasn't cool to be a lesbian. It was kind of cool to be a gay man. But being a lesbian was bad. Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres was a lesbian and her show was about to get canceled and everyone hated it. Everyone was mad at her. Rosie O'Donnell was gay, but she didn't. She got a haircut, and everyone hated her haircut. It wasn't a great time to be a lesbian in, in the U.S. of A. Or really probably any other countries. It wasn't a good time for lesbianism. So I was a jerk to my mom about it. Like, I definitely was an asshole to her about it. And that is sad for her and me, I guess. But mostly for her. But I just wanted out. I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't tell anyone. Obviously, like, the parallel between you and your father is, like, clear to me in terms, especially of, like, high intelligence and being very successful. I'm going to talk about how you're, like, you know, the CEO and editor-in-chief of Autostraddle and whatnot. Yeah, I think I'm just curious about, like, the trajectory of where you are right now how that was kind of like affected or propelled by the experience or if you were kind of destined to, to be this successful, even if he was around because he helped kind of shape you in a way. Yeah. I would say that he like groomed me to be this kind of person for sure. We can thank a man for all this travel. <laughs> yeah. Thanks man. You know, and he died before I even knew that men were bad. <laughs> So I like never had to think about my father like as a cis man, as a cis straight white man. You know, I could just see him as my father. I feel like he absolutely like made me into the kind of person who thought that I could do this. I think that I definitely felt a certain amount of pressure to be exceptional because he was exceptional. But I don't feel like that pressure was like unpleasant in any way. The love pressure. I don't think it made me strong at all like I think it made me very um I think it made me like a sort of glass shell encased in like really solid coping mechanisms both healthy and unhealthy but I don't know that it made me strong at all or like more capable in any way I think 
maybe in the beginning I thought at some point I would like overcome it. But I think there was a point in my life where I was like, no, I don't think. I think like the point when I wrote that essay where I was like, like, I'm never going to overcome it. And like, that's fine. This is who I am. Like, I'm a person who will be grieving forever. I think I would have done this. I mean, I don't think I would have gone to boarding school if he hadn't died because I even when I went to summer camp, I would be like, I miss my dad. I have to go home. And that sort of put me on a certain path as well. Also probably wouldn't have been able to pay for it because obviously when you're like an accounting professor and you like analyze stocks and stuff for a living, you have your money well invested in such a way that when your life insurance policy is cashed in like six years earlier than expected, there's a solid chunk of money there. And a lot of his friends gave money for our college and for our education. So I don't have any like student loans or whatever. And I was able to go to boarding school, which is an incredible privilege that most people don't have. Although obviously I'd rather have my dad than boarding school tuition. Do you think that your coming out was like either stalled or accelerated by this experience? Oh, I think it was probably stalled. Because I, I have a very, like, it's complicated to access all of my emotions. Like, I, I have a lot more, like, I have a lot of control over what I'm accessing at certain times in a way that I think some people see as maybe, like, deranged. But has just sort of been how I've, like, learned to live. So it's very easy for me to, like, block feelings out or to not access feelings. So even though I'm, like, very intellectually aware of a lot of things or I think of myself as being in touch with my emotions in a lot of ways... I'm always consistently surprised by things that I'm that I've stowed away like really effectively. And I think also I definitely looked to men to like replace him. But then I realized you could that women can replace men too. So <laughs> but you know, I didn't realize that at first, I think. I also like valorized men in a really intense way because which I think is probably normal for like girls who are closer to their fathers and their mothers like it's really thought of men as great. And I didn't think of them in a, in the same like critical way that I would later. Like I would be horrified to think I was a feminist. Like that was something I was thought was terrible to be as a young person. So I think it delayed it for sure. Absolutely. And just wanting to like have something in my life be normal um, and not always be, because I, I was, you know, there were those random other people at my school, but within my social group, like I was the girl whose dad died. Mm -hmm. And that was like always between me and everybody else, you know, even my close friends, because they're teenagers. No one knows how to talk about it. So no one did. And so they just like were a little bit like, I don't know, when's she going to finally crack mm -hmm. and have a mental breakdown? more out of curiosity now but do you think the reason that you're attracted to more like masculine or center women is related to that uh, um <clears throat> <laughs> uh, mm, i don't know maybe yeah again like i'm 37 and i'm still figuring out like what am i attracted to what am i into yeah and like a part of a lot of the people i've dated um or like the person I was like engaged to like a big part of my draw to her was she reminded like she was she was like him and that she was very talented in like multiple areas like she was really good at, at like all different kinds of things and but that she wasn't pursuing because she didn't have to because she had other things she was good at and she was like from the midwest and like 
liked farming and fit in with my family right away and was really into like camping and climbing and stuff and all of this stuff that like really reminded me of my dad and that definitely like propelled me towards her in a really intense way and and like her her incredible interest in like in getting to know my family and and wanting to be a part of it because her family life was like a little messed up was a little fucked up the woman who had raised her who was her grandma died suddenly like five months into our relationship I've definitely been drawn to people because they remind me of him in some way and I think it's taken me it's it's taken a lot of like kind of mind journeys or whatever to to figure out like what what's something I'm doing because this is what I'm like truly drawn toward and desire desire or what's what is something I'm doing because I'm trying to like fill a certain a specific void a lot of people aren't close to their fathers at all like a lot of people like like I said like a lot of people I've dated have estranged at best relationship with their fathers I've had I think I've had three partners who like did not know where their fathers were at any like at all had like a vague idea of what state they might be in but beyond that we're not sure it feels to me like people who have lost their mothers have experiences that are more similar to each other like it seems like people are closer I guess it seems like people are closer to their moms in general than or at least women seem to be closer to their moms than to their dads to a lot of people it doesn't the idea of their dad being dead is not that weird because they don't have close relationship with their father to begin with I want to say that probably maybe 25% of people aren't close to their dads regardless of whether or not he's alive that's a statistic I'm making up but it feels true (laughs) there's a lot of absent dads men you know Um, I mean there's a lot of absent moms too but it's just a lot more rare to find somebody who like has been raised by a father but not a mother but I think it's it's different it's weird for me because because of the specific relationship I had with my dad that we were closer but I think in general it seems like people had closer relationships with their moms I think it's less but also at the same time I think it's expected mm-hmm. there's lots of times when people because I notice now since my dad is dead all the times when people assume I have a mom and I do so that's good but like people really assume that all the time and people assume you have a dad a lot less like a lot of the weird questions like what do you, you know the sort of like random questions people ask that they think are innocuous that are like actually super loaded you know like where's your dad like what does your dad do for work or like oh are your parents married or these random things and I'm like oh god now I have to tell this stranger that my dad is dead mm-hmm. it seems like that probably comes up a lot more for people with moms I feel like there's more of an assumption that someone has a mom than there is that someone has a dad so in that one specific way it's been a little bit lighter on me it is something that I like very much have, you know, blocked out because I think to actually consider, to truly consider it is, is just something that is, I think will really only be possible when maybe my life is more stable and emotionally consistent and I can like pull it out and look at it. But I think that in general, I think about him most when I'm the saddest, probably what do you feel like has helped you through grief or helped you like understand your experience more if anything maybe nothing um 
I'm trying to think of any time I've ever felt helped through my experience. Writing. Yes. There. I've done it. Writing about it. Writing about it has helped. Um, and also when I do write about it, people will reach out and, you know, or there'll be comments of people who can connect to me or people will send me emails and stuff and I never know what to say. I usually don't write back, which is unfair. Like, I feel like there should be like a way that you can see an email and you can just send someone like the impression of your emotional response to it. You know, just be like, by the way, this did make me cry, yeah, you know? Yeah, just another picture instead of having to come up with words because I don't know what words to say ever. But I feel like, yes, I've had a profound emotional response to this, but I don't really know what I can give you in return for it. And I guess I just sort of hope that maybe... Venmo them. They, yeah, I Venmo them. Thank you for this emotional experience. It was $4. We'll put a pool floaty as the, as the thing. Yeah, so writing has helped me through it a lot, definitely. That's been the main thing, I think. That's probably been the only thing. I mean, I've gone to therapy, but I don't know. It feels like it's just, it's under everything. Like it's never the, it's never the thing on the top of the pile. And it probably should be because I think I obviously have like weird issues with fear of sudden abandonment, for example. Yeah. But it feels like it's something that is underneath everything all the time. Mm -hmm. More so than something I can like pull out and like look at on its own. But again, like, I don't know. It's like, I feel like the most I can do is to, like, live, to live, to not die, to, like, do something good in the world, to try to be empathetic and supportive of my friends. I don't feel like coming to terms with my father's death or coping with my father's death or processing it is possible. I give a lot of advice, right? <laughs> As one does when one is a prominent lesbian. And sometimes people send things in and they're like, what should I do? And I just want to be like, this just sucks. Like, there's nothing you can do. Like, this is what the situation you're describing. And it's not death. Sometimes it is, but it's often other shitty situations. Like, this is just going to be hard. And that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, it's not conquerable. It's just, it just is, you know. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Reese Bernard, you can follow her at AutoWin, A-U-T-O-W-I-N, on Instagram or Twitter. Or you can go to autostraddle.com to see all of her writing and the whole website she co-founded and built and continues to build. I'll also put an essay of hers about her dad on the Patreon for you to peruse. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. But if you'd like to put your support elsewhere, there's an Atlanta nonprofit called Forever Family at foreverfam.org where you can donate money to kids with incarcerated parents. A recent report found that almost 200,000 kids in Georgia have an incarcerated parent. So I will put the website in my show notes if you decide to donate there. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash or BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. I hope everyone has a good Father's Day.